Campfire stories. Now, before we jump into it today, uh, today is a, is a special day on the church calendar. So not just McDowell, but the, the, the historic church calendar. Have you ever heard of, of the word Pentecost? Anybody ever heard of that word? Pentecost. If you've been around the church a long time, maybe you've heard that word. If you are new to the whole church thing, you may not have heard of that. Pentecost actually uh, began as a, as a festival in the Old Testament. And Pentecost was, it literally means 50 days. That's the Hebrew word literally is 50 days. And it's 50 days after Passover. And it became the start of this festival of weeks or uh, harvest season for them. So they would celebrate this day. That's happened throughout uh, the course of history for for the the Jewish people. And in the New Testament, uh, it became what marked the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, he told us that it was good that he would go away because the Father would send an advocate, uh, a counselor, to be with us. And what I love about this day is it reminds us, and if you miss other things uh, throughout the morning, don't miss this. Pentecost is a reminder that you are never alone. That's a good thing, isn't it? That you're never alone, that that you're never on your own. In the moments that you feel like you are completely on your own, that God has checked out, He doesn't care. Pentecost is a reminder that the Holy Spirit is with us, it's among us, and the Holy Spirit, for those of us who turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit is within us. Now, that's good news, right? Okay, somebody said amen. That's a good thing. Like, it's good news that you are never alone, and, and, and Pentecost is that reminder that the Holy Spirit is here. Now, the story for today, we're in this Campfire Stories uh, series And the story today is an interesting one. It's a tiny book in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters long. And it's this tiny story where the author, uh, the the narrator of the story, never mentions God. Isn't that interesting? A story where where God, by the narrator, God's never mentioned. Uh, Now, a couple characters mention God, but God is never mentioned by the narrator. But the truth is God's spirit is active throughout the entire story. And the truth is for us today that even in the moments we feel like God is distant and he's not a part of our story, God is active in and around each one of our stories. And what Jesus does is he invites us to acknowledge God's work and to lean in, to turn back to it, to lean into it, because that, Jesus said, is is where we find true life that is really worth living. Now, I want to challenge you this week. this book, uh, the, it's the book of Ruth, by the way. This book only takes about 15 minutes to read, start to finish, if you read it out loud. And uh, I want to challenge you. I'm going to tell you some of the story today, but I'm going to challenge you to read it this week. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up uh, to, to Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. Um, if you're unfamiliar with, with the Old Testament, it's, it's the beginning part of the Bible. There's a table of contents in the beginning, super helpful on books like this because it's so small, it's easy to flip past. And if you're like me, you're like flipping and you're like, I cannot find this book. And luckily, I have this little tab right here that helps me find it quicker than you all. And I found Ruth, but there's a table of contents so you can use that. Ruth is just after Judges. It's a great little book. So if you have your devices, Bibles, let's go ahead and open that up and begin to look at the story of Ruth. Now, as we get in, it's helpful to first play a game. Are you with me? Playing a game? Okay, let's play a little game. This game is a game where we're going to look at a picture and you're going to try to guess what it is that you're looking at. Have you ever played this game before? 
And we're going to start with the easiest and go to the most difficult of pieces, okay? So this is the easiest one. This is round one. We only have three rounds. And you're going to play against your neighbor to see who's more observant of what's on the screen. So here's the first picture. So go ahead and you can guess with your neighbor. Go ahead and tell them what you think you're looking at. You got it? You can say it out loud. Strings. I hear it. Okay, this is what you're looking at. The pages of a book. Now, that's the easy one. How many of you got the first one, level one? No one. Wow. I mean, you, you could at least act like you did and raise your hand like you got it. No. Did the pastor just tell me to lie? I don't. Okay, second one. Here's, here's the second one. See if you can get this one. You see what you're looking at? Water? Waves? I heard waves. Anyone? All right, here's what you're looking at. A nickel. Now, we all have an out on this one because none of us carry change anymore. Well, not many of us carry change anymore. So maybe you haven't seen a nickel in years. Anybody get that one? Anybody? Yes! Let's give them a round of applause. First ones this morning to get that. That is awesome. All right, last one. Every single one of you has seen this this morning already. So here's the last one. Let's see if you can get number three. Telephone, I heard, telephone. Electrical line. It's really quiet in here. All right, this is what you're looking at. A guitar. The end of a guitar, it's the string. So you were close because the, the wires, the lines. Anybody get guitar string on that one? No one? So we only have two winners for the morning. Awesome job. Let's give them a hand. Yes. Now, it is quite possible in life to be so close to something that you don't see the larger context at play, isn't it? Sometimes it's possible to be so connected or in the middle of something that's going on that you completely miss the context, the larger picture of what's going on. And here's what I believe, and I think Ruth tells us this, explains this in this story, is that, that so often we feel as though God is absent in our world and in our lives. That so often we are so focused on what is right in front of us, and it is possible that we miss the grand story that is being written all around us. And Ruth, the story of Ruth, pushes us to this, helps us to see uh, the beauty of God's grand story in, even in the little minute details of our lives. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, who, who died this, this past year, um, he writes this intro to, to the book of Ruth, and he says this, the outsider Ruth was not born into the faith, and she felt no natural part of it, like many of us. Uh, anybody ever feel that way, that you're on the outside of the faith? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but I think from time to time, many of us have felt like we're not really a part of this whole thing that God is doing we feel like we're on the outside looking through a window maybe at a party that, that we haven't been invited to. 
You just feel like you're on the outside. But Ruth came to find herself gathered into the story and given this quiet and obscure part that proved critical to everything that God wanted to do in the world. Like Ruth, this outsider who wasn't even an Israelite in the Old Testament, that God in some way took her story and changed the entire trajectory of us, of our story. Now, how, you might ask? Well, let's get into the story. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and he went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech, Elimelech, Elimelech. Anybody wonder where that came from, Elimelech? Anyway, bad joke. And his wife was Naomi. And their two sons were Malon and Kilion. So now just some context. Um, Israel was the promised land, right? You remember this part of the story. Israel was the promised land. Moab was not the promised land. Uh, Moab would have been on the other, t- other side of like the Jordan River and the sea. I should have thrown up a map. Um, but it was a, a, a ways away and it was outside of what would have been considered God's lands. Does that make sense? So... Uh, Elimelech and his family, there's, there's a famine in God's land, the promised land, so they decide to leave and go find food elsewhere, which was in Moab. Now, when, when my kids were young, uh, or before they were born, actually, my dad told me to be very careful what we named our kids, because oftentimes their names began the, was a picture of what would happen in their lives. Anybody ever, like, realize this? like the names of your children, like it comes true over time. My dad really warned us uh, that this was the case. And so our first son, we didn't, we didn't really do that much investigation, and we named him Connor because we thought it was a cool name. Um, Connor uh, means wolf lover, which is strange, I know. So our young son, wolf lover, the, the, the main thing that he was scared of in his early years was wolves. He was scared to death of wolves. Every night, he asks us to check under his bed. We're like, we live in Arizona. We live in Oklahoma. There's no wolves to be found around here. Like, they are far away. We'd have to check under his bed, in the closets, looking for wolves because he couldn't stand wolves. Now, it didn't bother me. I just called my dad and told him he was wrong. I'm like, Dad, wrong. Like, his name means wolf lover. He does not love wolves. Years later, Robin, talking to her dad, whose name is Randy, his name means wolf. Connor's grandfather is the wolf that the grandson loves. And the moral of this story is parents are always right. Anyway, (laughs) uh, it helps us to see some of these names and what they mean to see how the story plays out. So just some names. Uh, Bethlehem uh, literally means house of bread. Now, maybe you've heard of the name Bethlehem before. Jesus was born there. Yeah, yeah. It's the house of bread where Jesus was given to us by God. So the house of bread, um, which is interesting because there's a famine. There's no bread uh, in Bethlehem. Elimelech literally means my God is king. Uh, my God is king. So the, the one whose name means my God is king, who's in the house of bread, decides to leave God's house to go somewhere else to look uh, for food. Naomi literally means pleasant. I think that's a good thing to be known for. I'm pleasant. Uh, Malon, one of the sons, his name meant sick. 
not the good sick, but the other sick. And Kilion, uh, the other son, literally means dying. Welcome to our home. These are our sons, sick and dying. <laughs> no thanks, I'll pass on dinner, right? It's like, that's a weird uh, thing to name your kids. Moab literally means who is dad. Now, Moab got its name because Lot in the Old Testament, have you ever heard of Lot? Uh, Lot in the Old Testament had an incestuous relationship with one of his kids, had a child, that child, this is in the Bible, guys. Like, you should read the Bible. It's crazy stories that are in there, but it shows God redeeming this craziness that goes on in our world. Like us, we're crazy too. Anyways, Lot has this uh, incestuous child, and that child founds the land named Moab. Lot doesn't want anything to do with it, so the name, who's your dad? Who's your daddy? is the name of Moab. So this is the name of the land of Moab, whose dad. So um, in the land of Moab, Elimelech, his family have left because there's a famine and they don't want to die. They go to find food and what happens is Elimelech dies. So Elimelech leaves so that he'll live and he dies. The two sons marry Moabite women, which is frowned on, upon by God's people. The two sons die. Sick and dying end up dying. Naomi is left in a foreign land with her two daughters-in-law, all alone. Naomi doesn't know what to do. And she realizes she's not in a place that she can take care of herself. Uh, she and these two daughters have no future, and so she decides to return home. And on the journey home, she tells the two daughters-in-law, you need to stay here. Your only future is in Moab. You will never have a future in Israel. We don't like your people. Uh, we don't like your kind. You need to stay out. Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, agrees and stays in Moab, but Ruth will not leave her mother-in-law. And we find this statement from Ruth in chapter 1, verse 16, one of the most powerful statements of loyalty that we find in the entire Bible. And here's what Ruth says to her mother-in-law. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Isn't that a beautiful statement of commitment? Ruth's like, I'm, I'm not leaving you. I will stay with you until we die. So she leaves her home. She leaves her parents. She leaves all that she knows to become an outsider in a foreign land with her mother-in-law. Um, bizarre story, right? And we're not even to the end of chapter one yet. All of this takes place. Uh, as Naomi and, and Ruth get close to Israel and people begin to see that she's coming home to Bethlehem, um, there are whispers. Is, is that Naomi? Where's her husband? Where are her kids? Who is that Moabite? Why is she bringing a foreigner home? And as Naomi enters in, she says to her friends, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. And the name Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant any longer, for I am bitter. Now, in this next little piece, like four sentences, 
Naomi says some things that I think would resonate with many of us. And what she feels she has experienced in life in some ways represents what some of us feel like we've experienced in life. Are you ready? Here's, here's why she asked her friends to call her Mara. She's bitter. For the Lord has made life bitter for me. For the Lord has brought me home empty. Have you ever felt like that? Like God's brought you somewhere empty? And by the way, how do you think that makes Ruth feel? Who's with her? No, no, I'm empty. For the Lord has caused me to suffer. For the Lord has sent such tragedy upon me. Now, in all these four statements, there's one commonality, and that is the Lord. Have you ever found yourself saying something similar? One of the most difficult conversations as a pastor I have with people is, is this kind of conversation. Matt, why did God do this to me? Why, why did God, if God is all-powerful, then why would God bring this upon me when I've done everything right? I, I followed him. I showed up when I was supposed to show up. I did the Bible studies that I was supposed to do. I prayed. Not only did I pray, but when things started to turn south, I prayed even harder. And yet God never responded. Call me Mara, for God has made life very bitter for me. Have you ever found yourself there? It's one of the most difficult places to be because you feel like the things that have happened all around you, the circumstances of life, um, display the absence of God, not the presence of God. For some of us, it's happened in our family members. We've seen something take place, and we look at that and we think, my, my, my father has been faithful to you, and yet, God, you did this to them. God, they were faithful, and, and why is this happening to their kids? God, I've done everything I know to do, and yet I still have this disease I will never get past. Call me Mara, for I am now bitter. Sometimes we are so close and we believe the circumstances all around us are a display of God's absence. And I think what stories like this remind us is that even in the darkest of days, that God, not the one to cause the pain, God is actively involved all around us. Even when it seems like he's distant and silent to us. God's work in our life, God's work in your life, God's presence in your life is not always obvious in the circumstances that you're experiencing every single day. I want to say that again and I want to just rest with this for a second because I think we need to hear this. Some of us really need to be reminded of this, that God's presence in our life and God's work in our life is not always obvious in the circumstances that surround us. 
And even in a story like this, where a man takes his family to rescue them, he dies and his kids die. God is actively doing something to bring about restoration. And we're only at the end of chapter one. Chapter two, Mara or Naomi and Ruth are now in Bethlehem. They really have no uh, great picture of the future, but they know they need to sustain their lives. And so they decide, Ruth decides, to go out to gather grain behind the harvesters. So it's harvest season. Ruth begins to go out to the fields and just pick up what she can to sustain them. And I, I like this next phrase, and as it happened. And as it happened, it just so happened that she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, isn't that just like circumstances? That oftentimes we'll run into some people that God has put in our lives to show us that we're not alone. So she's in this field, she's picking up food, and many of us would go, now this seems strange that someone would let an outsider come to their field and pick up food. It seems strange, doesn't it? In the Old Testament, God commanded his people. Now listen to this goodness of God. God commanded his people in the Old Testament to not gather all the grain themselves, all the wheat themselves, all the barley themselves, but to leave some behind for the outsiders and the immigrants who didn't belong there so that they could sustain their lives as well. Isn't that like the goodness of God? To say, I'm going to be super generous with you and you should be generous with the people around you as well. And so this is why... Boaz would let outsiders and immigrants come in and pick up along the edges of the field because God had commanded it. So Boaz is working through his fields, making sure everything's working as it's supposed to, and he notices this woman, Ruth. He realizes she's not from here. I'm not sure who this woman is. And so he begins to ask his, his hired hands, who is this woman? And they tell him her entire story. This is Ruth. She's from Moab. She's one of those from Moab. She doesn't belong here. And yet she has committed herself to be with Naomi, Elimelech's wife. So Boaz goes over to Ruth and he says, My daughter, I want you to stay right here in the field when you gather grain. Don't go anywhere else. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. I will protect you and I will provide for you. Isn't that awesome? Like God is providing all along the journey. Uh, Ruth goes back to her mother-in-law and begins to tell her this. And the statement that, that Boaz gives to Ruth is this. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you for what you have done. God's loving kindness is given freely to an outsider who does not belong and I think that's good news for us. Now, someone should say amen. amen. Like, this is good news for you. Even when you feel like an outsider, you are welcomed into the family of God. Even when you feel like you don't belong, you are welcomed into the family of God. That's the kind of church we want to be as well. Even when no one else is willing to open their door, like, we want to be this kind of a family that gives people grace and mercy and hope and peace. Chapter 2 ends with the goodness of Boaz. 
Now, chapter three is scandalous. Let me warn you. Like it's R-rated, kind of scandalous. I tell you all the time, you should read the Bible. There's good stuff. Like this could make a great movie, what's about to happen. I'm gonna give you some ideas of what's going on and then you can read it this week. So Naomi and Ruth begin to realize that if we have a future, we need someone to marry us into the family. And because Boaz is a distant relative, he would be the best one to bring us into his family. And so Naomi calls her daughter-in-law, Ruth, over and she says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a shower (laughs) or a bath, clean yourself. Good instructions for all of us, right? (laughs) Now, just contextually, one of the things that would happen if you lost your husband is you would dress in 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 a style of mourning where you didn't always look the best. And so she had been in mourning for, for a while with, with her husband having died. And so her mo- mother-in-law says, take a shower. You look terrible. You smell. So let's do something about that. And then I want you to put on a new dress. Wear something nice. And tonight, when it's dark. See, I knew it would get quiet in here when I started telling this part of the story. <laughs> tonight, as darkness falls, I want you to sneak over to where Boaz is. And I want you to wait until after he's finished eating and drinking. And then I want you to lay at his feet and uncover his feet from the blanket. What in the world is Naomi telling Ruth to do here? It's scandalous, isn't it? Is she seducing him? I don't know. You have to read chapter three to find out. So here's what happened. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking, and I'm reading this, I'm serious, I'm reading this, and was in good spirits. You can read between the lines. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and he went to sleep. Ruth came quietly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and he turned over. And he was surprised to find a young woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me. For you are my redeemer. Huh. What does that mean? Okay, a little scandalous, isn't it? So a family redeemer, God for his people, had always wanted people to be taken care of and kept safe. And so if a husband died, God put it into the Old Testament that a family member would then marry that woman to keep her safe and provide for her. So what Ruth is doing here, scandalous in some ways, What Ruth is doing here is proposing to Boaz. She's proposing to him, asking him to take her as his bride. I won't read the rest of chapter (laughs) 3. Chapter 4. Boaz uh, goes to the town gate where all the business of the city is done. And he announces that He, as a family redeemer, is going to redeem this family. But there is someone who is closer 
a closer relative who has an option to redeem them first. So he makes it very public. He doesn't want this to be done in private. The other person refuses, and so Boaz takes Ruth into his home, and, he, and she becomes his wife. He marries her. Isn't that beautiful? Now, sometimes our, gener- our generosity and our grace to the people all around us alters the trajectory of their lives. Did you know this? Sometimes your grace and your generosity to the people around you can change someone's entire course. And this is exactly what happens with Ruth and Naomi. No longer is she to be called Mara because she's not bitter. She's been redeemed. The end of the book, chapter 4, finishes with uh, a a picture of, of what happens. Boaz and Ruth have a child. Boaz is the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of, you ever hear of David? Now listen, I know it seems like it's a little obscure and it doesn't matter, but the line of David is the line that would eventually lead to Jesus. God uses an outsider, a Moabite who has no business being in Israel. He uses an outsider to redeem Naomi and continue a family that would eventually lead to Jesus. Now, there is one word. If you've checked out this morning, I'm going to invite you back real quick. Come on back just for a second. I want to give you a word that sums up the entire book, and it's a word that I hope we'll chew on a little bit. And here it is. This is in Hebrew. It's hesed. Can you say hesed? Yeah, it's kind of a weird Hebrew word. It means loving kindness. And if you write in your Bible, like, the book of Ruth, up by the title, just write this word down, hesed, and write down loving kindness. Ruth was the one who showed loving kindness to Naomi by committing to her. Boaz showed loving kindness, hesed, to Ruth by marrying her and redeeming Naomi's family. And God is the one who shows hesed to us by sending Jesus to redeem us into his family. Isn't this a great story? Isn't it a great reminder of how much God loves us and invites us in? Uh, We're going to close this morning with a song called uh, The Goodness of God. And one of the lines in this song, and I hope we sing this like we actually mean it, is it says, your goodness, talking to God, your goodness is running after me. It's running after me. And I hope we realize through stories like this in the Old Testament, good campfire stories, stories we should tell sitting around a fire, I I hope we realize that God's goodness is not absent in our world today, but it's actually running after us. It's pursuing us, that God never gives up on us. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Even though your world is dark and you don't have answers to some of the questions that you have about what's going on, and why certain things have happened, God hasn't left you there alone. You need to know that God's loving kindness is still running after you. His goodness is pursuing you in all things. Would you stand with me and I'll say a prayer and then we'll close with this song.